0: This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com go slash speaking broadly.
1: This episode of Speaking Broadly is brought to you by Red Clay Hot Sauce. Learn more at red clay hot Sauce
2: com. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 black indigenous people of color owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org slash B-I-Z. Hello, this is Dana
1: Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview a woman who I believe has incredible wisdom to share. And today, my guest is Jamila Robinson. Jamila is the food editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer recently. And she has a very deep journalistic background. I can't wait to talk to you about food and journalism and coaching and leadership. So Jamila, welcome to Speaking Broadly.
2: Hi, Dana. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be on Speaking Broadly with you. So one of the things that
1: in stalking you I found was You seem to have a great affinity for your grandmother. And I've just come from visiting my 90-year-old mother, and I know that you have a 90-year-old grandmother. And your grandmother seems very wise. First of all, she seems like a fantastic cook. But beyond that, she seems like a spirit guide. I'd love to hear a little bit about your relationship with her and about strawberry preserves or whatever else she brings to mind.
2: My gosh, my grandmother just turned 90. Her name is Mildred Pinkston, and she is the smartest person I've ever met. She spent 30 or 40 years as a social worker for the state of Michigan and cares tremendously about people, but also care tremendously about food. Um, one of my favorite stories about her was how she kept me quiet, which was by giving me a quarter cup of sugar and egg whites, and she'd give me a whisk, and she'd say, here, count to 300. <laughs> and and then switch to the other arm and count to 150. And that's how we got meringue. And I still make the lemon curd that she taught me how to make before I could use the stove by myself. She was not only a great cook, she really had this great understanding of math and science and history and art and culture and could sing all the arias, but also would sing his eyes on the sparrow with the same energy and verve. And I spent a lot of weekends with her, going to the farmer's market. We would pick a flat of strawberries and then we would go home and hold them and cut them and macerate them. Sometimes we would make ice cream with those strawberries. Sometimes we would make preserves with those strawberries. And I always think of her when I'm almost cooking anything because she not only taught the recipes. And a lot of people think about their grandmother saying, oh, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. My grandmother really taught about precision and understanding recipes and understanding how recipes work before you start to add variations.
1: Uh, what part of your grandmother's social work life
2: did you adapt or lean into? Because I feel like it's you know it's a part of you. Um, it's not only my grandmother, but my mother. And my grandmother's mother was a teacher. The idea of public service, I think, courses through our family history and our family tree, and I think having an understanding of empathy and understanding why we need a social safety net. My grandmother always talked about people as people, and even if they needed help from government systems, those were public benefits to help people Uh, move along in their lives or move to the next stage in their lives and there wasn't anything to be ashamed of. My mother also cared a tremendous amount about people who weren't as privileged as we were and my mother <laughs> studied nutrition and was the communication secretary for the Black Panther Party and started the free breakfast program in Detroit and something that- Okay, wait a minute. How did I miss that? Your mother worked with the Black Panthers? Yes, she was the communications secretary and was a leader. And care tremendously, again, about poor people. And so you can see how she would have learned this from my grandmother and this idea that some people weren't as privileged as others and that because she understood nutrition, she understood that children learn better when they have food. <laughs> on, on their stomachs. And she started the free breakfast program in Detroit. We now recognize that as the free lunch program. We know that the U.S. government and now SNAP benefits are a direct correlation to that program. And I think it gives me quite a bit of empathy and being sure that our food systems are equitable, that we talk about food deserts, that we talk about having access to food, even for some people who live in very privileged neighborhoods may still not have access to a grocery store. And so we see how that breaks down <laughs> across class lines, across social, economic lines. I feel like I had a very special upbringing. We weren't rich by <laughs> any stretch of the imagination, but I went to very, very good elite schools that were public. And I recognized the difference between the schools that I went to and some of the schools that I passed by because mine were magnet and that some of those students didn't have the same benefits that we have. And it's something that I still recognize now. So when I'm thinking about our news coverage that I think a lot about how can we be sure that our stories uh, have impact with communities that we may not live in. And I think our food community is a community. So sometimes we end up telling stories about ourselves. And I think it's really important for us to think about the communities that we don't live in and the challenges that those communities may face and be empathetic to them.
1: Before we get to the journalism that you're doing today, I'd love to hear about the violin. As I understand it, you were quite talented and quite devoted. And it seems like you got that in part from your grandmother. Like what role did playing music and
2: music itself play in your life? Well, I started playing the violin when I was six, just taking lessons in public school. Um, my mother was also a pianist and lots of members of my family who are in the music business. Uh, music really is important to us. We would sing as we were cooking. Um, I love the violin. It spoke to me in ways that are a little bit hard to describe because when you're six and you pick up an instrument, either you love it or you want to move on to the next thing. But I just wanted to play the violin. I wanted to play it the way the records that we played at home I had played the violin for maybe two hours every day. Um, I went to Cass Technical High School in Detroit, which is set up like college majors. I was a music major in high school. So I was playing the violin starting at 7 a.m. for orchestra rehearsal for an hour and a half rehearsal, and then trying to learn to play the cello in the second hour. I played in the high school quartet. I played in the Detroit Symphony Civic Orchestra, which is a group of pre-professional musicians. I went to Interlochen, um, which used to be called the National Music Camp. It's now International Arts Camp. I didn't think that I wanted to be a musician, but I did want to write stories about music. And I had questions. When I was 10, I was a huge fan of Michael Jackson. I saw him moonwalk across the stage on Motown 25. It changed my life. And I started reading everything I could about Michael Jackson. The newspapers, Time Magazine, Newsweek, but I still had questions. And then in 1984, he was burned in the Pepsi commercial. And I had been burned by coffee when I was five. And I felt like only I could write that story because I knew about Michael Jackson and I understood music. And I knew from reading newspapers that the only people who got to talk to Michael Jackson were journalists. And so it was going to be a way for me to combine the violin and Michael Jackson. I would be playing the violin when I was supposed to be doing my chores and I would be plucking out Michael Jackson songs on the violin the when I was supposed to be practicing, like, etudes, right? And I played as long as I could until journalism took over. When we think about music, it, it, it gives you discipline, But it also, for me, it taught leadership skills. It's something that I use now because I didn't play sports. I played in symphonies. And at some point you realize that you all have to be bowing in the same direction. Sometimes you just have to sit back and listen to the oboe. And sometimes you have to sit back and listen to the cellos. And sometimes you have to sit back and understand what's happening with the percussion before you can come in with the strings. Uh, understanding how musicians have to come together in order to achieve something beautiful. That's how I lead now. You switched
1: over from music to journalism. A through line, though, is a tremendous amount of intensity. Is that just something you were born with? It sounds like at five years old, you were a pretty intense kid.
2: I don't know if I was an intense kid, very curious, extraordinarily curious, and I like to tell stories. My mother would tell stories and she would do all of the voices. I still remember being two or three when she would do Grover from Sesame Street. And she always had a lot of energy. My grandmother always told stories that way. And I think storytelling is just something that is important to us as a family. Um, we were very early readers. My older brother and I probably could read and write by the time I was three. And we could read the newspaper, we could read Time Magazine. And I remember being very fascinated by people and the lives that they lived, um, like to ask them questions about why they did the things that they did or why they liked the things that they liked. Because that was something that I was always interested in, well well. why do you like the clarinet and not the piccolo? Why did you pick saxophone over the organ? But I remember wanting to write about that. You, you became a journalist. Can you tell me a little bit about the ways that you're seeing stories
1: being told today on all the different platforms? and what you think the future
2: of that kind of storytelling is. Sure, so my previous role, I worked in the consulting division of The Atlantic where we helped other media companies tell stories and to figure out which platforms are the best use of storytelling for whatever their business strategy was going to be. So answering what kinds of stories do we need? Do we need to do something that is swipeable on Instagram, Or does it run in a Twitter thread if you're using social media? Sometimes it might be something like a podcast, like the best storytelling for certain kinds of companies might be telling their story through audio. It might be smart speakers, um, your Alexas, your series, and breaking down content so that it is audible. Sometimes it's video, sometimes it's just prose, depending on the audience. So that is really the trend, is responding to audiences where they are, and as content Becomes more viral it's smaller increments. We're seeing this with TikTok that somewhere between 15 to 30 seconds can capture a moment. And so, companies, whether they are media companies or foundations or other kinds of companies, have to look at those trends. So, that was a lot of my role, which is something that I've learned from all the different roles that I've had in journalism, was looking at other ways to tell stories when I started writing stories, they were always in prose. Everything had to be six or 700 words of prose. But you can tell that same story with six photos, or with six tweets. It doesn't have to be 600 words. And that's something that I learned very early on, because I was a page designer and art directed photos, because I was very interested in graphic design because I was interested in art. (laughs) And so that that goes to show that all of these touch points that we have in all parts of our lives can manifest in journalism. And because I was interested in computers, and at the time, they had this new thing that they were starting to use to design pages. Instead of a pike, a pole and paper, they were using this Mac thing. <laughs> my aunt had one of these Mac things at my grandmother's house. And so I already knew how to, be, how to use it. And so suddenly, these lessons that I had in journalism were translating to this computer screen. And so I was able to design pages right at the onset of how digital media was starting and how we were starting to use this thing called the World Wide Web. I know I'm really aging myself here. So right now, when you create stories, do you create them for multiple platforms or are you, like, are you engaged in TikTok? I like to conceive stories for the platform. I like to conceive something as a TikTok. To me, these are all just tools to tell stories. TikTok is just a tool. I don't think you have to learn how to use TikTok. I think you have to learn how to use TikTok TikTok as a tool to tell another story. So if you were doing Speaking Broadly as TikToks, these would just be quick hits where you're gonna be shouting out different women. Um, You could use that same meme to toss to other women to continue to, because you're telling your story as a TikTok.
1: I know that you like writing lists and you had a list for 2019. And before we take a quick break, I just wanna know in your mind, At this very particular point in time, do you have a list of things that either keep you going or a list that keeps you up at night? I mean, any kind of list. I'm just curious if you have one going in your mind just because it seems like you like to think
2: in lists. I do. Uh, I have a list of opportunities. It's an opportunity to change. It's an opportunity to let go of things that just don't work and that we've been doing them because people are comfortable. It's a time to stand in discomfort. It's an opportunity for that. It's an opportunity to learn. I've been like taking a lot of online classes. I've really been thinking about this time as not a time to feel down, but as an opportunity to look ahead and think about what the future will look like and it will be different. I'm really looking at this time as an opportunity to think about how I write. It's an opportunity for me to to be quiet and listen, um, because it is very quiet (laughs) right now, but I'm looking forward to things. All of my lists are about how do we look forward.
1: Is there a list in there for new people to pay attention to, or books, movies, inspirations that You feel will help realize those opportunities?
2: Oh, that's a very, very good question. I think that anytime you have an opportunity to read new voices or to go back and read things with a different lens. There are some writers whose maybe their second book was something that I had read, but maybe I hadn't read their first book. And Alexander Smalls, the chef and James Beard Award winning cookbook author is somebody who comes to mind that I knew his cookbooks and I knew his story, but I hadn't read his memoir. And I've been thinking about a lot about audio. And I've been listening to podcasts and listening to audiobooks. And and it's a completely different experience to go back and listen to those voices. I'm listening to right now a biography of Elaine Locke, who was a leader in the uh, Harlem Renaissance, the architect of the Harlem Renaissance. And it's so interesting to go back and to listen to this story that is of Philadelphia, it is of art and his relationship to art and music and culture and how it shaped so much of the music and the art and the storytelling that we have now. So that's how I've been thinking about this time and using it to circle back to some things and to read some voices that maybe I hadn't had as much experience with previously.
1: With that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from my extraordinary guest of the day, Jamila Robinson. Stay with us.
0: This episode is brought to you by Square. You might know Square from their little white card readers, but Square has a lot more tools that can help businesses, especially now that they're having to figure out how to safely reopen and make things work in this new normal. So many are stepping up to the challenge, like Fifth Hammer Brewing in Long Island City. To adapt, Fifth Hammer's co-owner Mary Izette created a Square online store so customers could browse available beers, build an order, and safely pick up cans from the taproom. I was able to set up our online
2: store within 24 hours of moving to a to-go model.
0: The Square online store allowed Fifth Hammer to keep beer production going, serve their local customers, and retain
2: employees. It's also very easy to train your staff on. They will be able to receive, fulfill, and provide your customers with a contactless pickup in no time.
0: If you're a business owner, Square wants you to know it has tools that can help you shift your business, like Fifth Hammer is doing. No matter if you're brewing beer, baking bread, or mixing to-go cocktails, you can start taking online orders in minutes with pickup and delivery. And if you're selling in person, Square can help you accept contactless payments. All these tools work together and they're all in one place. You just need a Square account to get started. See all the ways Square can help your business right now by visiting square.com go slash speaking broadly.
1: This episode of Speaking Broadly is brought to you by Red Clay Hot Sauce. Red Clay was founded by self-proclaimed stubborn chef Jeff Ryan. One day, while working on a new oyster dish in Charleston, South Carolina, Jeff created his signature flavor. It's a blend of Fresno chilies, which changed the oysters without stealing the spotlight. Since then, Red Clay has expanded its line of modern southern hot sauces and added barrel-aged hot honeys. Every flavor is crafted with love and cooked with culinary expertise. Every batch is balanced and flavor-forward. I know because when I got my Verde hot sauce, it was literally gone in a day. A bottle used by my family at breakfast, lunch, and dinner on everything from eggs to tacos to steak. I didn't set it up that way, but somehow it was gone. Red clay hot sauces are sustainably produced in a tiny town in South Carolina. They're crafted with just a few ingredients, namely southern peppers and high-quality vinegar aged in bourbon barrels. Unlike most hot sauces that boil their peppers, red clay cold presses theirs. This allows the natural flavors of the Fresnos, Carolina Reapers, and Habaneros to shine. Red Clay Sauces have won over a lot of discerning palates, not just mine, because they bring a heat that puts flavor before fire. Take a look at their collection of southern sauces and hot honeys at redclayhotsauce.com. Use the code Dana25 for 25% off your first order. Valid until August 31st, 2020. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. My guest today is Jamila Robinson, who is the food editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Jamila, you are indeed the food editor, but you have so many passions, and one that I'd like to talk about right now is your passion for skating. I don't know when you picked up skating but i read that as a gift you gave yourself when you were 25 it was to learn to go backwards and i love that notion and i'd love to just hear when did you begin to skate and what role does it play in your life
2: so i basically put down the violin and picked up ice skates my family's huge skating fans i mean i'm from detroit it's hockey town right and we went to a lot of skating events. The National Figure Skating Association has this a competition every year called Skate America, and it was held in Detroit a lot. The National Championships, you'll remember, that was Tanya and Nancy. So think about it from the, the, my perspective of the live show. But I love this young skater, Michelle Kwan. She was just a delight. And I was so moved by her that the way she skated backward gave me so much joy. And I remembered that I could skate, but I could not skate backward. And I could not do those backward crossovers that make you look like you were flying. And I said, you know, I'm going to go and learn to do that. And for my birthday, I gave myself a six-week set of lessons and my goal was to get to the six weeks knowing how to skate backward and i put those boots on and we went through the basic steps not only step step glide step cross back glide and then within six weeks i could skate backward before you skate backward you have to learn to turn because you have to be able to make that motion Once you turn and you can do back crossovers, then you can turn and go front to back. And if you can go front to back, if you can turn, then you can spin. So now I'm learning the spins. And oh my gosh, within a few weeks, I can not only skate backward, but I can do one of those Olympic style scratch pins. And Dana, I am hooked. That one set of lessons turned into... A year of lessons, that turned into private lessons, that turned into competitions. I started skating backward when I was 25 and I was doing axles in competition by the time I was 30. There's a whole world of adult figure skaters with competitions and the lights and the makeup and the kiss and cry and all the things you see on TV with the children, we have that too. And I miss it so much. It's it's one of the things I ache for with COVID. But it's it's it taught me so many lessons about things like how to stay centered in order to get a spin working and to make it look like that Olympic style spin with the arms over your head. You have to keep it centered. And I think these are such great lessons in life that one of the first things you learn how to do is to fall down. Because if you fall down, you have to get up and finish the program. If you want to leave the ice, you still have to make a loop around it. And there's like a few basic things about skating. You have to keep your eyes in front of you. That's whether you're going backward or forward. And, and then to use the hockey ref- reference, you have to skate to where the puck is going to be. And so you have to anticipate the future. Those are things that I, re- I like to use um, as leadership skills. I also teach figure skating um, <laughs> pre-COVID, and I teach mainly adults. The first thing I like to teach is that you don't need the rail. And You will see folks, you know, g- grabbing onto the rail and like, oh, my God, I can't let it go. But the thing is, is that is the most treacherous part of the rink. And if you move to the center of the ice, you're gonna have more room to breathe. And and that rail is just, it's, it's, a, it's a crutch, you don't need it. But if you use your own body, use your own balance, use your own thought process, and when you stay focused and keep your eyes in front of you, you're gonna be moving around the ice so much faster than holding to the rail. You have to let that rail go and keep your eyes in front of you. And if you fall down, it's okay, get up.
1: I'm not sure that there's a better metaphor for COVID, right? It's so scary not knowing what's ahead. You don't know where the puck's going to go. You might have a sense, but there's nothing but uncertainty. The, The notion of grabbing for what you know or what feels normal actually isn't the answer. And it's so counterintuitive, right? Like it just seems so intuitive that you would grab the rail, whatever it is that you know, whatever it is that seems solid. But In fact, like as we face the unknown, like it's better to go to the center and find the freedom and find the way that you're gonna be able to express yourself with some independence.
2: It's a step towards creativity. I think if you revert to the thing that you know thinking that that's going to be the thing that's going to be normal, I'm doing air quotes here. The thing is, is that we're evolving through this. We we can't really grab for the thing that feels normal just because it feels familiar. We have to start evolving in a way that COVID is probably going to be in our lives for a while. And so how can we evolve with it and move and adjust to it? versus thinking about, oh, I just can't wait till I can get back to in into a restaurant. Well, what, what are you going to be doing in the meantime? Well, can you connect with chefs? Can you connect with home cooking? Can you teach your children how to do a recipe that means something to you? Can you think about how to bring some a person joy by baking them a cake if they got laid off? That's something I've been trying to do the moment that we're in is normal for now. And the next one will be normal for three weeks from now or six weeks from now will be that normal then. We get Humans get used to things very quickly. So one of the things that you
1: mentioned when you were talking about skating is like knowing your body. And one of the things that I know you've been through is some really intense medical issues that revolved around Surgery. And you had a lot of lessons from that experience. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, about two years ago, I started having this pain in my hip, in my left hip, that I thought was related to skating. And after about six or eight weeks, it wasn't getting better. The pain was so intense that it hurt to walk upstairs. Uh, I couldn't sleep. The pain was so intense. And I finally went to the doctor who told me that, oh, there's a tumor in your hip, I think it's a fibroid. And who told me, oh, I think you might need this surgery. I, and I thought that her recommendations were a little aggressive. And so of course I went for a second opinion. And the second doctor told me, your blood work doesn't look good. And she did some more aggressive x-rays and showed me that I had tumor the size of a 17-week fetus crawling across my abdomen. And I had this five-centimeter tumor in my hip that was giving me so much pain and a whole network of tumors that were really bad. And she said, I I need you to check yourself into a hospital. And I said, ha ha, I'm busy. (laughs) And so she was asking me, she said, do you feel tired? Well, I, I work all the time. Of course I feel tired. (laughs) What do you mean? And so she says, I need you to pay attention and look at how bad these things are. Those are the ones that I'm concerned about that could be cancerous. These are the ones that are probably benign. I need you to see an oncologist. And she gave me this laundry list of things. But I love the way her name is Dr. King. I love the way she talked to me about it. She says, this is the problem. You need to check yourself in a hospital. You need to have this kind of surgery. This is how long it's going to take. You're going to need to sit down for about three months. (laughs) And I was like, I was like, honey, you just do not know. (laughs) Um, But at that moment, I realized that it was going to be a gift to listen to my body and to recover. And she said, if you want to skate again, these are the things that are going to be required. It's going to take this much recovery. This is how long a bed rest you need to have. And I don't want you working for at least three months. And that was really difficult for me. Sometimes I would take a two week vacation, and that always felt long. But to have three months of just recovery and it was exhausting but it gave me so much insight that time to start to listen to my body and to know that pain is actually a gift I wouldn't have gone to the doctor if I hadn't had this pain because I didn't have the other symptoms the thing about it is I was somewhat ashamed to be honest I was embarrassed I didn't want to go to my editor and say, hey, I've got this thing going on with my girl parts. But when I I told an editor that I was going to be visiting an oncologist, and she did so much to help me. She said, you definitely need this time off. Let's try to make your work as suitable as possible. Let's give you all the accommodation that you need And I realized that I needed to tell people what was happening to me. And it was something that, you know, as women, we don't share these things. And because we don't share these things, I didn't know that there were other women who worked very closely to me, who had had similar challenges. And I told Kat Kinsman, who folks will know from Food & Wine, and lo and behold, she was having the same surgery maybe six weeks before I was. So I was able to learn from her. And it's also given me a lot of insight into making sure our staffs have what they need. If, if they need time off, if they need more time with their children, if they just want to take a day off because their dog needs to go to the vet, for God's sake. It's made me even more aware of those kinds of, of things. You've been so productive.
1: I mean, we've listened you know, to some of your amazing accomplishments and to sort of have a need to have a full stop like was that psychologically difficult or you're just in tune with that as a challenge and I'm curious like what was it like inside your mind during that time when you had to
2: adjust all of your expectations of yourself I hated it at first I was looking for things to do something to keep my mind occupied because if it's not going at 120 miles per hour I'm thinking that I'm not being productive But then what happened is it wasn't the first week that I got out of the hospital. It was the second week that I was just so tired. And it was something that I really had never experienced that level of fatigue. And the thing that I was reaching for was the familiar, that feeling of being super busy and being super productive. And I was reaching for that versus what my body was experiencing at the time was recovery from a very, very like major aggressive abdominal surgery and all of the, the recovery from that internally and externally and then realizing, Oh, now I understand why my doctors were telling me, I don't want you moving around too much. I don't, I just want you to rest I had to adjust to my brain wanting to work at full stop and then feeling so tired that I couldn't think things through. After my sick leave was over, I finally got to go back to the ice rink and I was wobbly and my legs didn't feel right, but I was just so happy to be out of my house <laughs> on the <laughs> ice and doing these wobbly spins and it didn't matter that I couldn't do a good scratch spin anymore and I don't know if I'll ever do an axle again I'm trying to do them in the backyard um off ice but and I don't know if those double loops will come back But I'm happy that I have this skill and I went through the process of learning how to do it. Marilyn Meunier was one of my favorite skating coaches and she would always say it's a process, not an event. And that's something that I like to say and I like to think about. Like what almost everything we're doing, like me recovering from surgery, was a process, not an event. I didn't just get up after being bedridden for a couple of months. I had to think about it. My body had to go through this recovery And I think COVID right now feels like an event, but I think it's a process. I think it's a process that we're going through from understanding the pandemic, acknowledging the pandemic, acknowledging how we have to live through it. When the lights come on, it's not going to be overnight. That's going to be a process too. You're deep in the Philly food scene as well as the DC
1: food scene, as well as the national food scene. Um, How are you feeling about restaurants in the future and food in the future?
2: (laughs) Well, I, how am I feeling? Um, It depends on the moment. The future, what I hope will be is something that is more equitable and less fragile. The restaurant scene is, it exists on very tight margins. It is not a business that if you don't have a certain level of moxie that you're probably not going to survive so I like to lean into the pieces of moxie that chefs have that who say I'm going to be creative in this moment I'm, I want to keep the lights on I want to serve my community what I hope we will come out of of this is a way for restaurants to survive there's so many organizations from save Philly restaurants the independent restaurant Coalition, the James Beer Foundation are doing so much work. Beer Foundation likes to say that restaurants can open for good. And I'm hoping that legislation will look at these food systems and say, well, there is more support that needs to happen. So I can only be upbeat. I think food is so integral to our lives, not only the restaurant scene, but as people turn to home cooking, that's actually very exciting for me. And it's such a change from where things were just a few weeks ago where more people dined out than cooked at home. And to see that switch happen so quickly and people start to embrace things like sourdough and these baking projects or their thinking about grilling or they've become their own bartender and and having this connection with food and starting to understand the systems in place, the supply chain, that, that eating less meat at home is not just a thing for people who want more folks to eat more plant-based meals, but as a necessity. And also to think about the fragility of a neighborhood that you might live in that half the people may not have access to healthy food or fresh food, or that the free food boxes that people who are food insecure are getting now have a lot more produce. So this is like this beautiful consequence of of COVID that we are thinking about people who have food insecurity and now have fresh vegetables. And so how How can we sustain that? We can't let that go after COVID. At the end of Speaking Broadly, I ask my
1: guests two questions. One is, is there a product or an ingredient that is so much better than the hype? Something that transforms your
2: cooking that you think that everybody should know about? The product that I wanted to shout out was Cafe Ama, which are these whole beans from Puerto Rico. And I like this company because all the proceeds go to the Seeds Foundation in Puerto Rico, which is helping young people who are entrepreneurs. And I like their coffee beans. But a product or something that is just so much better is our whole vanilla beans. The price has come down quite a bit. It's The market for vanilla beans is kind of low right now. Um, and I made ice cream the other day, and just the smell of a fresh vanilla bean is just something that I think is so magical and and beautiful. And because they're less expensive right now, I was very excited to to uh, finally get a shipment of vanilla beans after not having them for a couple of years. It's from a company called Beanilla, which is a distributor in Los Angeles. And they um, bring in vanilla beans from all over the world. And you can buy them in small amounts and buy them in, in bulk quantities. I usually buy a quarter pound every other year. Um, They last pretty long if you keep them in a sealed container. It's something I actually like to give out to friends um, who I know like to bake um, with a recipe for either like a pot de creme or creme brulee or something of that nature. It's something I I just like to give away. I'd like to be on your gift list.
1: And (laughs) finally, is there a woman in the field of hospitality who you feel everyone should
2: know about? I want to shout out Hallie Bay Ramdeem. She's one of these editors who's a little bit in the background. Um, she's a editor of um, of Clean Plates, which is all about nutrition and healthy living. She um, was a former editor at the kitchen. She's a wonderful writer. You can find her at Halle Bay. Um, H-A-L-I-B-E-Y, Hallie Bay on Instagram. She's a really, really smart woman and somebody I like to work with. I not only love her writing, but I love her sensibility about how you include nutrition and uh, healthful living into food and hospitality because she's an editor and and you will not see her name as often, but she works with a lot of writers who are in the food and hospitality community. And I think folks in our community will recognize her as someone who's kind of in the background, but I think she's a really, really smart woman and um, and someone I think needs more attention.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you
2: for this riveting and inspiring
1: conversation. I appreciate your time. I know that you're so, so busy with everything that you're doing right now and so thank you so much for joining us and thank you all of you listeners for joining us for another episode of speaking broadly i hope you're taking care of each other and keeping safe during this time of the pandemic and beyond and um, we'll be at it again next week so please join me with another woman of wisdom have a great week